So I thought we would begin with a little bit of recap, especially since we only made it three verses into Zephaniah last time. I had intended to take up the entire chapter, and uh, I I made it uh, through verse 3 of chapter 1. But it is significant because verses 1, 2, and 3 relate to 4, 5, 6, and 7, which I think is the optimistic uh, uh, extent to which I... We'll make it today. Um, so uh, last time we discussed uh, a couple of different things. I want to read the quote again from Dale Ralph Davis. Uh, remember, we read the passage in Judges 6 uh, about, uh, about the call of Gideon and his response when he realized that he had seen the angel of the Lord. Uh, and Dale Ralph Davis, who, by the way, if you don't know him, he's written a bunch of commentaries. He's a Ph.D. from... Uh, I want to say it's uh, Jackson RTS, but don't quote me on that. He said, this sort of talk, uh, Gideon's response, I'm undone, Gideon said, uh, is strange to us because we have no real sense of terror and awesomeness of God. For we think intimacy with God is an unalienable right rather than an indescribable gift. There is nothing amazing about grace as long as there is nothing fearful about holiness. It is only God who can speak peace to the trembling. And so one of my prayers for us is that we would be a people that trembles at the Word of God uh, throughout the course of this study. So uh, a few things to note from last time. Remember that in verse 2, I will well, actually, let me just go ahead and read it. Uh, the word of the Lord, which came to Zephaniah, son of Cushi, the son of Gedaliah, the son of Amariah, the son of Hezekiah, in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah. I will utterly consume everything from the face of the land, says the Lord. I will consume man and beast. I will consume the birds of the heavens, the fish of the sea, and the stumbling blocks along with the wicked. I will cut off man from the face of the land, says the Lord. I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and I will cut off every trace of Baal from this place. The names of the idolatrous priests with the pagan priests, those who worship the host of heaven on the housetop, those who worship and swear oaths by the Lord, but who also swear by Milcom. Those who have turned back from following the Lord and have not sought the Lord nor inquired of Him. Be silent in the presence of the Lord God, for the day of the Lord is at hand. For the Lord has prepared a sacrifice. He has invited His guests. And I will stop there for now. Of note in verses 2 and 3 from last time is that what we're seeing is God's covenant wrath poured out. This is the curse uh, uh, of the, the, the consequence of the covenant with Noah. Uh, and you'll remember that God told Noah, uh, I will not destroy the earth again by flood as long as the days of the earth exist. And now we're seeing... Uh, we're seeing the days of the earth coming to the coming to an end, uh, and he even goes a step further uh, by condemning the fish of the sea, which was not condemned in Noah's day. Uh, there, this is also reminent, reminiscent of the Adamic covenant, the covenant with Adam. Uh, uh, I like to call this the creational covenant, uh, and we see that the order of creation is reversed. Uh, uh, I will consume man and beast. 
Uh, I will consume the birds of the heavens, the fish of the sea. It's reversing the order of creation. So we move from there into verse 4. But before we get into verse 4, I actually want to go back to Judges. Uh, And I did not plan this, uh, but I told you last time we're reading Judges uh, uh, with our family and family worship. And there's so many parallels. uh, It's unbelievable. So turn with me to Judges 10. We're past Gideon now. You can read the chapters between 6 and 10 on your own. But we're going to turn to Judges 10. There is only one recorded instance in the book of Judges where Israel cries out to God and also puts away their idols. Every time Israel cries out to God, which is literally almost every chapter, sometimes multiple times in a single chapter, uh, they don't put away their idols. They cry out to God and they say, save us, and God saves them. Uh, but they they don't put away their idols. There is one single instance contained in Judges 10. So by the way, uh, and I just did a cursory look through the book, but uh, Israel cries out in chapter 2, verse 4, 3, 9, 3, 15, 4, 3, and 6, 7, leading up to this one in chapter 10. Uh, So if you uh, want to investigate that further, please be my guest. There are many of tens of them uh, in the book of Joshua, uh, usually every couple of verses where Israel cries out to God for some reason. Um, So here in chapter 10, let's start with verse 6. Then the children of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord, and served the Baals and Ashtaroths, and the gods of Syria, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the people of Ammon, and the gods of the Philistines. And they forsook the Lord and did not serve Him. So the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel, and He sold them into the hands of the Philistines and into the hands of the people of Ammon. By the way, the people of Ammon are called out specifically in Zephaniah chapter 2, so pay attention to that. From, from that year, they harassed and oppressed the children of Israel for 18 years. All the children of Israel who were on the other side of the Jordan in the, in the land of the Amorites in Gilead. Moreover, the people of Ammon crossed over the Jordan to fight against Judah also, against Benjamin and against the house of Ephraim. So that Israel was severely distressed. And the children of Israel cried out to the Lord, saying, We have sinned against you, because we have forsaken our God and served the Baals. So the Lord said to the children of Israel, Did I not deliver you from the Egyptians, and from the Amorites, and from the people of Ammon, and from the Philistines, also the Sidonians, and the Amalekites, and the Maonites? oppressed you, and you cried out to me, and I delivered you from their hand. Yet you have forsaken me and served other gods. Therefore, I will deliver you no more. Go and cry out to the gods which you have chosen. Let them deliver you in your time of distress. And the children of Israel said to the Lord, We have sinned. Do to us whatever seems best to you. Only deliver us this day, we pray. So they put away the foreign gods from among them and served the Lord. And his soul could no longer endure the misery of Israel. And I'll let you continue to read from there. Um, 
at some point later, not right now. Uh, <laughs> um, there's a couple of interesting things to note that I think set the stage for what we're going to see in Zephaniah this morning. Uh, because one of the gods called out specifically in Zephaniah chapter 1, uh, in verse 5, uh, Milcom is the Ammonite god. Um, and Israel had gone back to serving this Ammonite god. And so these passages, at least in my mind, uh, are linked uh, in, in a significant way. Uh, but it's important to understand uh, that God's relationship here with idol worship and repentance, because idolatry is one of the issues that comes up in this first chapter of Zephaniah. Uh, so Dale Ralph Davis again. There is a difference between a prodigal who comes to his senses and returns home and a whore who pleads for her husband's security until she finds someone else to take her on. And I understand that that uh, may be a difficult quote, uh, but that's actually from a commentary. And that is how God describes his own people who uh, commit infidelity on the high places and underneath every green tree. Uh, is as a as as a whore. Uh, Christians must beware of their tendency to make God safe. Uh, when we do so, we end up worshiping something other than the holy God of Israel. So, in verse sixteen of Judges ten, uh, we see that God's saving of the people of Israel was not based on the merit of their repentance. Repentance does not earn our salvation, but it is, however, a requirement for our salvation. It's not a cause, but a condition is the way that John put it for me as I struggled through this this week. Repentance is not a cause of our, of our salvation, but it is a condition of our forgiveness. There is no forgiveness without repentance. Um, and it's important to consider this as we turn again to Zephaniah. So let's look at verse 4. I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against all inhabitants of Jerusalem. I will cut off every trace of Baal from this place. The names of the idolatrous priests with the pagan priests. Those who worship the host of heaven on the housetops. Jerusalem, at this point in time, is the place where God dwelt with His people. This is fundamentally where where God's people come to meet with God. And now Jerusalem becomes the target. So we've sort of dealt with, in verses 2 and 3, uh, the judgment upon the whole world. And now we're seeing judgment on Jerusalem. Uh, and so it's becoming very focused. Leadership is the target uh, in this. Against the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the idolatrous priests, the pagan priests, in verse 8, uh, princes are named, king's children are named. Uh, so there's, there is a focus on the leadership here. You must remember the significance of this. In Genesis 49, God promised that the scepter would not depart from Judah. So what we're seeing here is that God's judgment is being rendered upon Judah. And we'll talk about how that can happen. But let's talk about some of the specifics uh, here, I will stretch out my hand against Judah. The idea here, and, and God's outstretched hand is an idea prevalent all throughout Scripture. 
the idea here is that this is God's beyond normal intervention. Uh, so God stretched out his hand and brought plagues upon Egypt. He stretched out his arm and liberated Israel in Deuteronomy 4, Deuteronomy 5, Deuteronomy 7, Deuteronomy 9, Deuteronomy 11, and Deuteronomy 26. Um, and, and you'll remember from two lessons ago that there is a, uh, there's a lot of uh, overlap between Deuteronomy and Zephaniah. Uh, and, and again, the argument that I made that the book of Zephaniah came after the discovery of the law in 622, in part because there are so many quotes directly out of Deuteronomy. Uh, in Matthew 8, Jesus stretches out his hand and cleanses a leper. And you'll remember uh, that uh, lepers were unclean and you couldn't touch them. And yet God shows forth his power, his beyond normal intervention, by stretching out his hand and cleansing a leper. And ultimately, Jesus stretches out his hands on the cross in order to earn our forgiveness. Uh, so here we have God stretching out his hand against Judah, his own people, against the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the very place where he said the scepter uh, would not be removed in Genesis 49. God is, stretching out, God is stretching out his hand. He's going to cut off every trace of Baal from this place. The names of the idolatrous priests with the pagan priests. So the focus here is on Israel's worship. Uh, Israel has sinned directly against God and continued to sin directly against God uh, with idolatry. So turn with me for a second to 2 Kings 23. We need a little bit more context. We'll start in verse 19. Y'all notice I'm not holding the cup of coffee the whole time. Uh, who does that? Second Kings 23, verse 19. Now Josiah also took away all the shrines and all the high places that were in the cities of Samaria, which the kings of Israel had made to provoke the Lord to anger. And he did to them according to all the deeds he had done in Bethel. He executed all the priests of the high places who were there on the altars and burned men's bones on them. And he returned to Jerusalem. And skipping to verse 24. Moreover, Josiah put away, put away those who consulted mediums and spiritists, the household gods and idols, all the abominations that were seen in the land of Judah and in Jerusalem, that he might perform the words of the law which were written in the book that Hilkiah the priest found in the house of the Lord. Now before him there was no king like him who turned to the Lord with all his heart, with all his soul, and with all his might, according to the law of Moses, nor after him did any arise like him. Which, by the way, that is quite a statement about the reforms of Josiah. Even good king Hezekiah, three generations earlier, who reigned for many years and was a good king, uh, was not as good as Josiah. But here in Zephaniah, we have a condemnation against Judah at this very same time because the people of God had not turned from their idolatry. Josiah tears down the idols and Josiah is seeking to cut off Baal, every trace of Baal from the people. 
uh, and he's executing, literally killing people, uh, executing these priests on the high places where they had worshipped Baal, uh, and he's burning men's bones on them. Uh, This is a condemnation of those that would lead others into idolatrous worship. Uh, This is a condemnation on the leaders of the Old Testament church. And honestly, it's a condemnation on our leadership if our leadership leads those into idols. And I'm not talking specifically about our church. However, the church broadly, um, the focus is on this place, Jerusalem, where God dwells with his people. So moving into verse 5. The focus begins to shift toward individuals, those who worship the host of heaven on the housetops. Josiah is tearing down idols, and he's knocking them over, and he is burning their priests on their altars. And yet the people of Israel are continuing to worship, even in their own home, on their housetops, they're continuing to worship the sun and the moon and the stars. Uh, And I think we covered over the last couple of weeks, the idea here is that uh, uh, the surrounding nations would worship the stars, worship the hosts of heaven in order to uh, uh, gain fertility, in order to be prosperous, in order to have security, in order to have protection. Uh, But the idea here is prosperity. Uh, They sought prosperity in the privacy of their own home. They sought prosperity from worshiping the host of heaven, which, by the way, is specifically condemned in Deuteronomy 4, and the death penalty is prescribed for it in Deuteronomy 17. So for the sake of time, we won't go to all those places. Um, But the thought here is that the stars controlled their destiny. Uh, Some of these gods had children sacrificed to them, but God is saying, I will destroy them, and I will send my own son to die for their sin. So, the other issue to consider here is that, uh, and John has been preaching through Leviticus, we see that worship is corporate, even in the Old Testament. And what is condemned here is private, individualized worship. We are not free to make God into whoever we want to make Him uh, in order to fit our own needs. And this is not a condemnation of family worship. This is a condemnation of, uh, of the type of idolatry that makes God into what, uh, into what we want Him to be. So moving on uh, in verse 5, uh, those who worship and swear oaths by the Lord. The idea here is that this type of worship involves a posture of oath-taking. Uh, and really, when we think about it, All worship is oath-taking in a sense. When we say, Amen, that's the Koine Greek word for verily, truly, I say unto you. It's an affirmation or an oath in a sense to God that this is what we believe. Uh, And so these these people in their worship are swearing oaths to the Lord. What's wrong with that? You know, I just said that's sort of what we do when we say Amen in a sense. Uh, well, the issue here is that they also swear by Milcom. Uh, they have brought in outside influences, uh, and in this case, this is the god of Ammon, the Ammonites next door, who continually perturbed the people of God, who stole from them, who raped them, and who in uh, chapter 2 
are specifically called out with a special judgment from God, which we will get to, I would have thought, next week, but maybe in six or eight weeks, we'll, we'll see. Um, but the idea here is, uh, in chapter 1, verse 5, is that corruptions of Israel's worship, and specifically syncretistic religion, bringing in outside religions uh, and worshiping God alongside of other gods. So Calvin, on this idea, says, This worship, made up of various inventions, was an abominable corruption which God would punish, for he can by no means bear that there should be any such alliance, that idols should be substituted in his place, and that a part of his glory should be transferred to the inventions of men. God will not be worshipped by the inventions of men, whether or not they are the object of worship. In Judges 10, God knew that the other gods weren't actually gods. But He said, Go and cry out to the gods which you have chosen. Let them deliver you in the time of your distress. God knew that that His people would not be delivered by these other gods. God knew that they were fake or icons. But yet God said, go cry out to them. And the people of God said, we have sinned. So the Westminster Larger Catechism, question 110, what are the reasons annexed to the second commandment? The more to enforce it. This is a long answer, but I'm going to read it all. Uh, it's It's a part of the confession of our church and our denomination. The reasons annexed to the second commandment, the more to enforce it, contained in these words, For I, the Lord, thy God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children into the third and fourth generation of them that hate me, and showing mercy unto thousands of them that love me and keep my commandments, are besides God's sovereignty over us and propriety in us, His fervent zeal for His own worship, and His revengeful indignation against all false worship, as being a spiritual whoredom, accounting the the breakers of this commandment, such as hate Him, and threatening to punish Him unto diverse generations, and esteeming the, the observers of it, such as love Him, and keep His commandments, and promising mercy to them unto many generations. We make many arguments in the church today, and I'm talking about the broader church, the universal we, uh, it's an icon, not an idol. I literally heard that this week uh, from somebody, um, and they. <laughs> my, I got a letter home from my child's teacher at school, and uh, she said, uh, "I know that." Uh, she said, "Your daughter is not willing to participate in uh, our Christmas celebrations and." Uh, the images that they were promoting in the school, and I know that you have not taught her at home that this is idolatry. And I said, well, actually, (laughs) we have taught her that this is idolatry. Um, But we make all sorts of excuses. Uh, It's an icon, not an idol. It's art. It's beautiful. And guys, I realize that uh, this is the season where everybody takes out their manger scenes. Um... And uh, I am saying uh, that 
I didn't plan this for this particular season. However, if God is convicting you over something, uh, don't let me hold you back. Um, It's art. It's beautiful. It's helpful. It's a reminder. It tells a story. It's meant to encourage. It's no different than words, which are just pictures on a page. I heard that one from a member of this church this week. Um, It it helps children to understand the Bible. Um, I just do this for my children or my grandchildren. Also heard that one this week. But God says in Deuteronomy 7.5, But thus you shall deal with them. You shall destroy their altars and break down their sacred pillars and cut down their wooden images and burn their carved images with fire. For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. So what do we put our trust and our confidence in? How often do we make sacrifices to the gods of fertility? Wealth, success, security, peace, Academic success, cultural relevance, power, intimacy. These are all the idols of our age. And I've been attacking for a moment the images that are created by the church and used in worship, next to worship, besides worship. And now I'm asking us to focus on those images that we create in our heart. Calvin very aptly said that our heart is an idol factory. How often do we make idols of 401ks and put our trust in our ability to retire? Um, Put our future security, uh, put our trust of our future security into these other things. That is what the people of Jerusalem were doing as they worshipped the sun, the moon, and the stars. As they were trusting in something else besides God. And I'm not saying go and give away your 401k. But I am saying question what your trust is in. Question your own heart. Jeremiah Burroughs, in his book on contentment, which the men are going to be reading in the next few months, uh, says, Every comfort that the saints have in this world is an earnest penny to them of those eternal mercies that the Lord has provided them. And Calvin says, It seems a sufficient excuse to foolish men that they retain the name of God and they confidently boast that the true God is worshipped by them. And yet we see that they mix together with this worship many of the delusions of Satan. Idols have changed shape, but the impulse in our heart to trust idols of our own engineering is ever-present. So Thomas Scott who uh, came about 90 years after Matthew Henry, uh, wrote a commentary on Matthew Henry's commentary, which was very famous in Spurgeon's day. Spurgeon said that Thomas Scott made Matthew Henry better, uh, for whatever that's worth. Um, Thomas Scott says, Those that think to divide their affections and adorations between God and idols will come short of acceptance with God and will have their doom with the worst of idolaters. For what communion can there be with light and darkness, Christ and Baal, God and mammon? If Satan have half, he will have it all. If God have half, he will have none. What have they to do with God? That call on the Lord, yet swear by Machem. That's the same God, Milcom, in the New King James. May none of us be of those who draw back into perdition, but of those who believe to the saving of the soul. I have ten minutes left and two verses, and these are the best two verses. Um, 
in verse 6, the focus begins to shift from sins of omission to, I'm sorry, from sins of commission, where they are intermingling idol worship and adulterating the worship of God into sins of omission. Those who have turned back from following the Lord and have not sought the Lord nor inquired of Him. So the idea of seek and inquire, uh, those two ideas together uh, are devotion directed toward God and worship. And a a failure to seek after God leads to judgment in this case. Spiritual ambivalence is now the target in verse 6. Spiritual ambivalence is equally damnable as pagan idolatry. Let's turn to Hebrews 6, 4. I told you I wouldn't hold the cup, and then I just realized I'm standing up here holding the cup. <laughs> Hebrews 6, 4-8 through eight. For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and have become partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come if they fall away to renew them again to repentance since they crucify again for themselves the Son of God and put Him to an open shame. For the earth which drinks in the rain that often comes upon it and bears herbs useful For those by whom it is cultivated receives blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and briars, it is rejected and near to being cursed, whose end is to be burned. Those of you that have turned back from following the Lord, you backslidden, you lukewarm, and those of you that have not sought the Lord, that do not care to listen to His word, that disobey your parents, little ones, Today is the day that you must seek the Lord. Repent and seek the Lord. Look at Zephaniah 2.3. Seek the Lord, all you meek of the earth who have upheld His justice. Seek righteousness. Seek humility. It may be that you will be hidden in the day of the Lord's anger. Confess Jesus Christ before men, and He will confess you also before the Father who is in heaven. That's Matthew 10. But whoever denies the Lord Jesus Christ before men will be denied by Christ before the Father in heaven. And I realize these are very sobering words with now six minutes left. Um, I'm going to read a relatively short passage, uh, at least compared to the original, from Jonathan Edwards. Uh, sinners in the hands of an angry God. And then I'm going to try to get through verse 7. The bow of God's wrath, this is Jonathan Edwards, the bow of God's wrath is bent, and the arrow made ready on the string, and justice bends the arrow at your heart and strains the bow, and it is nothing but the mere pleasure of God that an angry God, without any promise or obligation at all, that makes the arrow one moment from being made drunk with your blood... Thus, all you that never pass under the great change of heart by the mighty power of the Spirit of God upon your souls, all you that were never born again and made new creatures and raised from being dead to sin to a state of new and before altogether unexperienced light and life are in the hands of an angry God. I would commend that sermon to you. It's available online. Um, 
moving into verse 7, we begin to see the, the next section of covenant wrath uh, portrayed in verse 7. Uh, the day of Yahweh, the, this is the first time that the day of Yahweh or the day of the Lord uh, comes up. The day of Yahweh involves a theophany in which God manifests His powers. Um, I have a very long Calvin quote, which I am still considering whether or not I will, I will read it. Uh, but here's what we need to know. In, in the very beginning of this verse, be silent in the presence of the Lord. This idea of silence is godly submission. Actually, I need to read this Calvin quote because Calvin pretty much preaches it. Let us first see that the prophet means by the word silence. Something has been said of this in the second chapter of Habakkuk. We said then that silence is meant submission. And to make the thing more clear, we said that we were to notice the contrast between the silence to which men calmly submit and the contumacy which is ever clamorous. For when men seek to be wise of themselves and acquiesce not in God's word, it is then said that they are not silent, for they refuse to give a hearing to His word. And when men give loose reins to their own will, they observe no bounds. Until God obtains authority in the world, all places are full of clamor, and the whole life of men is in a state of confusion. For they run to and fro in their wanderings, and there is no restraint where God is not heard. It is for the same reason that the prophet now demands silence, but the expression is accommodated to the subject which he handles. To be silent at the presence of God, it is true, is to submit to God's authority. But the connection is to be considered... For Zephaniah saw that God's judgment was despised and regarded as nothing. And he intimates here that God had so spoken that the execution was nigh at hand. Hence he says, be silent. That is, know ye that I have not spoken merely for the purpose of terrifying you, but as God is prepared to execute vengeance, of this he now reminds you, that if there be any hope of repentance, ye may in time to return, to return into favor with him, if not, that ye may be without excuse. So the silence called for in chapter 1 verse 7 uh, is turned into... I will quiet you with my love in chapter 3, verse 17. Turn with me there very quickly. Chapter 3, verse 17. The Lord your God is in your midst. The Mighty One will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you in His love. He will rejoice over you with singing. What we need to understand in chapter 1, verse 7 is that... God is a God who is executing the vengeance that He promised Abraham in Genesis chapter 15. And you'll remember, I'm not going to go there and read it because there's two minutes left, uh, but you'll remember in Genesis chapter 15 when God made a covenant with Abraham uh, that they took many animals, bulls, there were two birds, there were all of these animals and they split them in half and uh, a deep sleep fell over Abraham and uh, a, an oven and a torch passed through the middle of those two animals. And so the idea behind that 
that covenant ceremony, that splitting of all of those animals was, if you break this covenant, this is what I will do to you. And so what we see here in verse 7, this is a terrifying verse. Uh, we see that God is saying, be silent in the presence of the Lord God, for the day of the Lord is at hand. The Lord has prepared a sacrifice. Uh, that sacrifice are the covenant breakers. This is the the promise of God to Abraham coming to fruition that if you break his covenant, that you will be broken. And he's invited his guests. Uh, every Every commentary I read said that these guests are the birds of the air that were to come down and feast upon the bones of the covenant breakers. Um, which you'll remember in Genesis 15, Abraham was shooing away the birds, which seems like an insignificant thing. And here, that very thing is coming, is coming to roost. Uh, but literally. Uh, but there is more here. Uh, there's more here that we see from the perspective of the new covenant because the word invited I'm not a Hebrew scholar so let me find this in my notes real quick the word here invited at the end of verse 7 is uh, also translated consecrated or set apart and the idea here is set apart for holy use it's literally the word to sanctify kodesh but I don't know how to say that I'm not a Hebrew scholar So from the perspective of the new covenant, we can see that God has prepared a table and God has prepared a sacrifice. And while we deserved to be that sacrifice as covenant breakers, that God has ordained a sacrifice, a perfect and holy sacrifice on the cross for our sin. And He has invited us or sanctified us, set us apart for holy purposes in in verse 7. And He says, take and eat, take and drink. And God's covenant wrath is poured out upon Christ. So there's a dual imagery here where we see both the Abrahamic covenant coming to fruition at the end of the age and God's prepared way for His people to have communion with Him, all in this one terrifying verse in chapter 1, verse 7. Let's pray.